Isaiah chapter number 41. And uh, we're going to pick up sort of in the middle of the chapter. And uh, we're doing that for a couple reasons. One, for brevity's sake. And then two, because as we seek to make application of this passage, I don't want to divorce it from the greater context of the passage, but I do want to make a practical application of it to our lives tonight. If you want to know uh, what this chapter is talking about, it's talking about God's workings uh, in the land of Israel, and particularly it's talking about when they returned from exile later on after the Babylonian captivity and how God would raise up Cyrus the Great. He's the great man that's spoken of in uh, Isaiah chapter 41. But he talks about how that God has the ability to intervene in what I would call hopeless situations. I'm going to preach to you on that a little bit tonight. Uh, Isaiah chapter 41, verse 17, the Word of God says, When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue faileth for thirst, I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers in high places and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water, and the dry land springs of water. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar and the sheeta tree and the myrtle and the oil tree. I will set in the desert the fir tree and the pine and the box tree together, that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord hath done this and the Holy One of Israel hath created it. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. What a blessing it is to get to be here in your house. And Lord, there's so many all over our country and all over this world that would crave to get to do what we're doing tonight, get to meet with your people and hear the word of God and enjoy fellowship one with another. I pray that you would put a hedge about us and our church family, that you'd watch over and protect us. And Lord, most of all, protect our hearts, protect our minds. May they not be the the playground of the enemy, but Father, may we surrender our spirits unto you. May we love you with passion and single-mindedness. And Lord, may we put all of our focus and all of our faith upon you tonight. I pray for these requests that have been given, Lord. Many needs, needs that every single one of them, if I was to be honest, are beyond my capability or anyone in this room's capabilities to answer to the fullness of their need. But Lord, there's not one of them that's bigger than you. And I want to thank you for that tonight. Lord, I want to thank you that you love us and that we can trust you with these matters and these things. So I pray that you would work in these matters, your will, in a way that would bring you glory. And we'll be sure to give you the praise for it. Lord, bless the preaching tonight. May Christ be magnified, for it's in his name we ask it. Amen. When I come to Isaiah chapter 41, the Lord wants to frame in the mind, I believe, of the audience that this is being given to, the hopelessness of their situation. Certainly, this time in Israel's history, they could have never imagined that they would have wound up in as dire a circumstance as they did. One of the things that will help you most as you study your Bible is to study the historical context of the Word of God. When the book of Isaiah is penned, it is not during a tumultuous time in Israel's history. In fact, it was during what we could call one of the golden ages in Israel's history. The greatest time in Israel's history, undoubtedly, was during the reign of Solomon. But even after Solomon's time, particularly in the land of Judah, they would have these sort of seasons of grace and of respite in which God would give them a good king that loved God and that wanted to do the will and the work of God. And it was during such a time, and you can read, really Isaiah's prophecy spans a lengthy period of time, but it was during this time that Isaiah prophesied. He predominantly prophesied under good kings. And the land of Israel, and particularly the southern kingdom of Judah, was doing well during this time. 
So it was no surprise that it fell on deaf ears when Isaiah began to pronounce woes unto them and to warn them that their idolatry would lead them into devastation and into destruction. And whenever Isaiah pins this down, I'm sure that when the men that heard this and read this, when the families that heard this and read this, when fathers would sit down and impart to their children this truth, I'm sure there was a sort of incredulous attitude, a skeptical attitude about what was being said. God here is talking about them being in dry places, but in their national climate and in their uh, economic climate and even to some degree in their spiritual climate, they were not, Brother Charlie, they weren't in dry places. Things were going well for them. In fact, if you had if you had looked at them and, and tried to preach doom and gloom, they would have never believed you. And in fact, they did not believe Isaiah. It's part of the reason they didn't repent because they said this to themselves. It will never happen here. I hope that we as a nation are beginning to learn to say things will, to not say things will never happen here. Certainly we're living in times when things that we never would have thought would have been a reality and whatever you may believe about what's going on in our world today, I would promise you this, uh, that if you've got a crystal ball, if you looked at it this time last year, it didn't look like what it looks like right now. You would have never thought we would have been where we are at right now. And so too to these people, whenever they read this, they would have thought, Lord, don't you know your audience? Can't you read the room? Can't you tell this is not where we're at? But here's what God knew that they didn't know and, and they should have from what He said that they didn't know was that it wouldn't be long before they'd be in that place. Sometimes God gives us things and He lays them up for a future day. God's wise like that. Uh, God knows what we have need of and not just what we have need of when we know we have need of it, but before we ever know we have need of it, God knows we have need of it. I was talking to someone this week and we were talking about something God had done in, in their life and how God had dropped a blessing unexpectedly into this person's life. And I, I made the statement, I said, you know, I've learned sometimes in my life God does my banking for me. There are times that God will know I'll have a need and I don't know I'll have the need. And, and God will know that there's something that will be fit for. And sometimes God will set something back. I've got a long story that will not bore you with, but I'll just tell you the bullet points of it. Back years ago when I first went to get my concealed carry permit, me and my wife did. We, we took our classes on the same day and it's about an eight hour process and, and uh, took all the classes and passed everything and they give you a little certificate. It's got all your information on it. And then you go to the DMV and uh, you, you get your, your certificate. You get your license. You turn it in and pay the government for your freedoms and everything and then they give you a, they give you a license. And uh, so we had got this all done out on Maloneyville Road out by the Sheriff's Department. And then we decided we, we didn't have time to go that day, and it was a weekend. We said, we'll go on Monday, and we'll get this done, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to drive to Clinton, because if we go to Straw Plains to the DMV, it's going to be all day, but we can go to Clinton because it's a state matter. We don't have to be in our county. We can go to Clinton, go to their DMV. We'll get in and out, no problem. So on Monday, we went and, and, and got everything uh, you know, squared away and, and they were looking through our paperwork and it was our turn and our time and, and they looked at all of it and they looked at Leah and they said, Mrs. Weber, do you know that they have transposed two numbers of your social security number? And she said, no, I, I had no idea. They said, yes, I, I'm sorry, they've transposed it. We can't accept it like this. Well, immediately, you know, I got in the flesh I and mean, I was mad because I knew what it was going to mean. I said, well, what do we do now? I mean, we know, we have proof. They said, I'm sorry, we can't accept any of that. And I said, well, what do we do? And they said, well, you're going to have to go back to the people that you took the class with and get them to get you a new certificate and get everything straightened. I thought, man, now i got to leave Clinton. i got to drive all the way to Maloney. But it's too late in the day. I'm going to have to go tomorrow. This messed everything up. I was so mad. I mean, I couldn't even. 
I was just beyond it, you know. So we go the next day and get it all worked out. Fast forward eight years, and we're getting ready to get in the car and drive all the way across the country to Wyoming. And we realized at the last second that we had come up upon the very last day to renew our gun carry permit before we left. So I looked at Lee. I said, what are we going to do? How are we going to do this? So I looked at my license, and my license expired that day. But, Ken, it was 5.30. There wasn't no going and getting it done. That It was 5.30 in the evening. And I said, what are we going to do? And then I remembered that one of our licenses was issued a day later than the other one because eight years earlier, some guy on Maloneyville Road transposed two numbers in my wife's Social Security card. And so we went the next day and were able to get hers updated. So I'm a felon, but she wasn't because we were able to drive across the country because she was able to get hers issued. I'll spare you all the technicality of it, but suffice it to say, I didn't have a crystal ball. I couldn't have looked eight years down the road and realized I was going to be too, uh, you know, nearsighted and lazy to get my gun carry permit renewed before we went to take the trip all the way across the country. But you know, sometimes God does those things. I'm just telling you tonight, and I spent too much time telling it, but I'm just telling you, God knows what we don't. Sometimes you'll look at things and think they're setbacks, but really what they are is laybacks. God's laying something back because He knows what you're going to need sometime down the road. If they had been willing to trust God, they would have known that at that time, though their wells were running over, though their cup runneth over, there was coming a time they were going to be in a dry place. And God knew that He could meet their need when that time come. And so He gave them this truth to lay up in store for that day. Now I want you to notice about this great need that they had. The Bible says in verse number 17, When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue faileth for thirst. He goes on to describe what he'll do for them, but suffice it to say, they had a great need. It's one thing to be hungry. None of us like to be hungry. And I don't, I don't just get hungry. I get hangry. So not only do I not like to be hungry, but nobody else around me likes it when I'm hungry. Uh, but there's no greater need for the human body than that of water. We have to have it. You cannot live without it. The Bible tells us three things about their situation. One, it tells us that they were parched. They had a great need, a desperate need in their life. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I go through seasons in life that feel dry. You ever go through times like that? Sometimes they're spiritually dry places where it just feels as though there's a slab of concrete between me and the throne room of God and times when as a preacher I'll open his word and I know it's rich and I know it's precious, but it's like I've got to fight and scrap for every single ounce of, of meaningful truth that I can derive out of it. And sometimes in our life, you as a, as a witness and a soul winner, you might find times when it seems like every door is closed to you and every opportunity is stifled for you. Sometimes it's not spiritual. How many of you know sometimes you go into economic dry places in your life? I know you know that's true. I mean, if you don't wait a few months and you will. Sometimes it is emotionally dry places where for whatever reason you're battling uh, things that you don't understand. But suffice it to say, all of those needs, I think, are dwarfed by this need of the body for water. That tells me this. This was a great need and, in fact, in some ways, a greater need than you and I face. If God could meet this need, God could meet whatever need you and I have in our life. So they were parched. Number two, they were poor. So they had a great need, but, you know, it's, it's not a big problem to have a need if you've got the means to fill that need. But the Bible says when the poor and needy seek water. 
Now, there would have been a time that if you had talked about purchasing water, you would have laughed at it. Uh, and now, of course, that's not something we even think twice about. I mean, I've got a bottle of water that we paid for sitting up here on the pulpit. But particularly so throughout human history, men, they didn't necessarily buy the water itself, but they bought the rights to the water. And so if you lived in a dry place, it wasn't the end of the world. Irrigation has been something that's been a part of human history uh, for a long, long, long time. And uh, God has enabled mankind with the wisdom and, and cunning to be able to irrigate places and and make uh, make ground fertile. It wasn't a problem, but here's the problem. If you ain't got water, but not only that, you ain't got the means to get the water. Now you're really in a mess. They had a need, but listen carefully. They had a need that they couldn't fill. There was no way. They didn't have the money to buy it. And the Bible doesn't just say that. The Bible says there is none. Sometimes you and I will have needs in our life that we may see a way to, to fill it, but we don't have the means to do so. Sometimes I've had a few of these needs in my life that even if I had what I thought would be good means to do it, I don't even know how I would effectuate a change in my circumstances. It's a need beyond human intuition. So they were parched and they were poor, but then it goes beyond that. Notice that they were perishing. The Bible says their tongue faileth for thirst. What that seems to suggest when a person is going through severe thirst, their tongue will swell up. And they, they don't even have the ability to speak or to talk anymore. Their tongue doesn't even function the way that it is supposed to. And that's what's pictured here. So this is somebody that's got a problem. It's a big problem. It's a problem that they can't feel, but it's a problem that is bearing down on them. A solution must be sought. If they walk any further miles down the road without water, they're going to die. Now, you say, preacher, why do you say all that? To encourage you. To encourage you. You might say, preacher, that don't sound very encouraging. I know. In fact, probably whatever you and I are going through pales in comparison to what this man was going through. So if my God can meet that need, man, don't you guess that he could meet your need and, and my need and my, and my, if he can meet that need, surely he can work in our life. So what does the Bible say he does for a person in that situation? Notice these four things and we'll be done tonight. The Bible says when the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue faileth for thirst, I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. What's the first thing God says He'll do when you and I have a great need in our life? The first thing we notice is His steadfast presence. He's there. How often do we overlook this first miracle of all miracles that God never forsakes us? That He's present. Notice His location the Bible says he won't forsake them. Now, what does that imply? It implies he's where they're at. You can't leave somebody you ain't with. You can't forsake somebody that you're not present in their same circumstances. So that tells me that if God calls them to walk through dry places, God will walk through dry places with them. He's present with them in that circumstance, in that situation. You know this and I know this, but why don't we just go ahead and remind our flesh of it tonight. Anything we're going through, we're not going through it alone. I, one of the things that has been a challenge throughout this past year has been not just the health, you know, scares and, and, and difficulties that we've all had to be encountered with and, and political upheaval and, and social and societal upheaval. I don't know about you, but I think we're watching our country being ripped and split into two countries and all these things are sort of unfolding before us. But you know, one of the hardest things through all of it and maybe it's been intentional to some part, I don't know. But certainly it's been one of the great struggles has been the isolation of it all. We talked about those 
folks that are in nursing homes and you know them and I know them, people uh, that are struggling, that are grappling, uh, that the loneliness and isolation is devastating to them. I read an article just the other day about a 91-year-old woman in Canada who, faced with another government lockdown, chose uh, to engage in assisted suicide. She said, I won't do it again. I can't, I can't go into a lockdown again. I can't be isolated away again. And sadly, she chose, and, and it's legal there in, in Canada, uh, she chose to, to take her own life with the assistance of medical doctors. Now, I, the sad thing is not that that woman died. If she knows the Lord, uh, then she certainly left this world and went into a far better situation than this world is. But I'm saying the sad thing is that she was so desperate so devastated at the prospect of the isolation that she was unwilling to endure it again. Now, that's not a political commentary on whatever you or I think about things. It's just an observation of the challenge of the crushing, devastating effect that isolation has on the human spirit. You study suicide rates and, and you know, uh, deaths of despair, they're calling things like drug overdose and and, and stuff that's going on in our country, it's skyrocketing. And undoubtedly, much of that is due to the social isolation. God, God didn't create one person and put them alone. He created two people. He looked at man and he said, it's not good that man should be alone. And he created woman, he put them together and he stuck them in a garden to tend it. God knows and understands we crave fellowship with one another. Now, here's the good news. You say, preacher, I don't change nothing about my situation. No, but it ought to remind you of this. God values fellowship with us so much that He's promised us He'll never leave us. Whatever we go through, He's going through it. One of the things that people no doubt have struggled with is to say, preacher, it's hard to go through what I'm going through, but it's especially hard because I'm going through it alone. Not if you're a child of God, you're not. If you're a child of God, God is with you throughout the whole thing. So I see His location, but then I see His intuition. The Bible says that, that their tongue has failed. But the Bible also the Lord says, the Lord, he says, I, the Lord, I'll hear them. I'll hear them. Now, what's he hearing? He's not hearing their tongue. Their tongue has failed them for thirst. But you know what he is hearing? He's hearing their heart. He's hearing their prayers, that they're praying in their heart, in their mind, in their spirit, in their soul. And it's a reminder to me that not only is God with us throughout our great need, but God knows what we're feeling and what we're experiencing. One of the great truths of prayer that was imparted to me through the Word of God and and made real to me through the preaching of God's Word is that our Heavenly Father knoweth what we have need of before we ever ask. Now that's important. You say, preacher, why is that important? Because sometimes I don't ask. Sometimes when I do ask, I don't ask the right way. Sometimes I ask for the wrong thing. The Bible says, before I ever ask, God already knows. He knows what we're going through. He's going through it with us. He knows what we need, even when we don't know what we need. Sometimes I struggle to know what to ask God for. Do you ever go through that? You ever pray for a situation but don't know how to pray? I find this a lot when I'm praying for people that I love that are wayward from the Lord. And I don't know where they stand with God. I know what their testimony is, but I don't know if they really know the Lord as their personal Savior. Sometimes I think to myself that what they need is for God in loving kindness to draw them back to Himself. Sometimes what I think is God needs to take them to the woodshed and wear them out. And I don't know how to pray. I don't know what to ask for. Sometimes I'll have a need, be it temporal or or emotional or, or relational in my life, but I'll have a need. But I don't know what God's trying to do through that need. And it might be that I'm begging God to intervene, but that intervention will rob me of something greater that God's doing in my life than whatever I desire. I'm just saying I'm a terrible prayer. And sometimes I don't know what to pray for. But I'm glad, though, I am a terrible prayer that God is a wonderful listener. 
and that he can listen past my infirmity and frailty and past my ignorance and narrow-mindedness, and he can get to the very heart of what I need. So I see his intuition, and then I see his dedication. He says, I, the God of Israel, I'll not forsake him. Now, I don't have to labor this. You know it, and I know it. But it's good to know, he says, he'll not forsake him. In fact, in another place, the Hebrews writer says, he'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. Listen, I've been forsook by folks in my life. You probably have too. I've had people that I thought, man, they'll never forsake me. But they're not sitting here. I've had folks that I thought, man, they'll always be there for me. But if I called them on the telephone, all I get is a voicemail. They'd never answer. And you've probably had people like that in your life too. That's discouraging. It's demoralizing. It makes you feel like, you know, well, they must not love me. They must not care about me. They must not have confidence in me. Isn't it good to know, though, tonight, listen, whoever may leave us, whoever may forsake us, and I'm not saying people won't, they very well may, God never will. And He's the one that matters more than anyone else. You know, our whole identity as a Christian is wrapped up in the love of God, the fact that He loves us. You know why I know I'm worth something in my life? Because God loves me. And if God if God loves me, I must be worth something, at least to somebody, at least to Him. And it's good to know that that something can never be robbed from us. So I see His steadfast presence. Then look at verse 18. God tells us that He'll hear us and that He'll not forsake us. Then in verse 18, He says, I will open rivers in high places. Now we're getting where we want to be. That's really what we're wanting God to do. We're wanting Him to fix a problem. Well, how's He going to do that? He says, I will open rivers in high places and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. Man, I love this. You know why? What do they need? They need water. What does God give? God gives water. God meets that need. But he goes out of his way to describe four different ways of saying he's going to meet that need. Two of them deal with the source of the water. And two of them deal with the setting of the water. And it's interesting to me. We see not only his steadfast presence, but we see his sufficient provision. God says, I'm going to give you water, but there's a lot of ways to get water. Uh, if you study, if you ever watch any of these sort of survival shows, I don't know if you've ever seen them, but man, they've got all kinds of ways that you can get water. I mean, you, you can put a plastic bag in the sun and, and it'll pull it out of the sand or you can, you know, you can this, this type of root, you can take it and squeeze it or take it and carve it or do this with it or do that with it. One old boy had something to do with elephants and I, I won't, I won't go into what it was, but suffice it to say, if you're desperate enough, there's water to be had. Amen. You might have to follow an elephant around with a, with a big old scoop to get it, or you might have to cut an animal open or a camel open to get it. Suffice it, I'll let you do your own research. I ain't going to bring that in the house of God. But suffice it to say, there are ways, if you need water and you're desperate, you can get it. There's a lot of ways to get water. How does God say he's going to give water? Well, notice first off, he says he'll give it from the high places. He says rivers and high places. Man, isn't that interesting? Because what a river does, Brother Ken, is it runs down. You won't find, when, you, when you're talking about the source of a river, there, there may be, you know, springs, there may be uh, fountains that may feed that. But he says rivers in high places. And you and I both know that typically what that means, like we have here in the Smokies, whenever things start to warm up, the, the streams swell. Well, why is that? Because much of that water is coming from snow that is rested on the mountains. And as it warms up, that snow melts and that water runs down the rivers. In other words, this has come directly from the heavens, is what we're saying. And it's a reminder to me that, listen, when God wants to, He can send blessings from above, supernaturally. 
He's done it in your life and He's done it in my life if you've been a Christian for any amount of time. Times that things that God's done that you can't explain and I can't explain, but there it was. God did it. He just supernaturally dropped something in your lap. And it may have come from some human instrumentality and sometimes you don't even know where it comes from. There, I, I don't know if you've ever sat down. If you tithe your money and if you give generously to God, you ought to sit down and budget sometime. You know what you'll find? Invariably, you'll have more month than paycheck, but somehow God makes it work. I don't know if you ever heard of what to call faith promise. You know what it is, right? It's the idea of saying, I'm going to give this to the Lord, though it is something I do not have. But it's an exercise in faith. I'm going to commit this to the Lord, and I'm going to watch God supernaturally give this to me so that I can turn around and give it back to Him because it ain't about finances, it's about faith. And God will use that to build faith in our lives. It's something if you're not doing, you ought to get in on. You'd be amazed how God will grow your faith by providing for you so that you can be a blessing unto Him and He can be a blessing to you. God can do that, man. I mean, He can just drop it straight from the heavens into your lap. But that's not the only way He does it. He says that He'd open rivers in high places. Number two, He said He would He would bring up fountains in the midst of the valleys. Now, this is the opposite, isn't it? The first, rivers in high places, the idea is that this precipitation falls from the heavens, either in the form of rain or snow, and rests on the land and then runs downward. Isn't that what it is, Brother Larry? But a fountain in the valley, that's water coming up from underneath. Tells me this, listen, uh, though a river runs down, a fountain springs up. And you know God can bring blessings up from your valley. Sometimes the blessings God gives you in your life are not the things you're looking to fall from the heavens but it's the things that God brings up right around your feet out of the problems, circumstances, trials, and suffering that you're begging Him to take you out of. I think Paul's the greatest example of this whenever he prayed about that thorn in the flesh. And the Bible tells us, it doesn't tell us what the thorn was, but it, it says that it was a, a messenger uh, from Satan, that it was it was uh, sent to buffet him and, and to try to derail his walk with God. But he prayed and he asked God to take that thing away. And he says three times he prayed, but God's answer was this. No, Paul, my grace is sufficient for thee. And Paul tells us that he learned through that that God's strength is made perfect in weakness. He said, I will therefore glory in mine infirmity that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now let's re rewind the tape a little bit. Has it ever dawned on you that the very thing Paul was praying for was the very thing that he was asking, begging God to take away from his life was the very thing that was giving God the most glory? It was the very thing that was exhibiting the strength and power and glory of Christ in his life the very most. He's praying and saying, God, take this away. God's saying, I won't do it because it's too much of a blessing to you. You just don't know it. Paul eventually says, I'll therefore glory in my infirmity. He says, I'll rest in the fact that his grace is sufficient for me. But see, that was a blessing that God brought up from the floor of the valley that Paul was going through. Sometimes the way God meets that need is by dropping something down from heaven. But sometimes He raises things up through our problems, through our trials to enrich us and strengthen us and endear Him to our hearts and develop us for Him. But then He says this, I will make the wilderness a pool of water. Now that's interesting to me. A wilderness, of course, is a place where presumably in this context there is no water. But God says, I have the ability to turn that, that wilderness into a lake. Now, TVA did this all over the South back about 80 years ago, amen, but not in the way that God did it. <laughs> and uh, there are still places you could go. If you go up on Norris Lake, you can go out, and there's a portion of, Nor of, of, of Norris Lake that's called Loyston Sea. It's one of the deepest parts of, 
Norris Lake. It's some 200 feet deep. And if you were to go down to the very bottom of Loyston Sea, you'd find whole communities that are there. Uh, from when TVA dammed up the river and, and uh, put us on a power grid and flooded those those places. And they turned that whole valley into a pool. Now it's Norris Lake and you go up there and try to fish and people on jet skis act like idiots. But 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 it, it was a wilderness and it was made into a pool. And you know how that pool exists, right? It exists by damming up the river, the source of it, backing it up because there's more water above the dam than they're letting below the dam that backs everything up. That's what they call a reservoir. God says here that he can take your dry places and turn them into a reservoir. It implies the idea of abundance. Abundance. It tells me that, listen, God has more than enough to meet our needs. He doesn't have barely enough to meet your needs. He has more than enough. Now, listen, this, this is where, this is where Creflo Dollar would tell you that if you name it, you claim it, you believe it hard enough, God's gonna dump a Learjet in, in your driveway at home by the time you get there. That's not what I'm telling you. I'm not telling you that God's gonna fill up your bank account. I'm not even telling you necessarily that God is going to fix your problem you're facing in the way that you anticipate Him doing so. I am saying He could if He wanted to. So if He doesn't, it's not because He's not able but it's because he's got a better way. So we see he can turn a wilderness into a pool. But then I see this. He says the dry land into springs of water. Isn't that interesting? I thought the wilderness was a pool. But now he says he can turn the dry land into springs of water. You see, the pool implies a reservoir, right? An abundance, a a superabundance of that resource. But a spring, it's not a pool. It's not a reservoir. Instead, a spring is a fresh supply. A fresh supply. You could go down off of uh, Love's Creek Road and they've got a spring, freshwater spring that comes out there. I don't know how fresh it is, man. Everybody and their grandmama goes there, but, but it's a, it's a freshwater spring. And, and every time I drive through there, there'll be two or three cars with Charlie Park there and people getting out, got milk jugs and stuff. And they like to get that fresh spring water. Now they could go down to Fountain City Park and dip a milk jug in the lake there, couldn't they? In the pond. I'm betting they wouldn't. I'm betting they wouldn't do it twice at least. Amen. Might do it once. They wouldn't do it twice. And I don't know if they'd want to or not. I'm saying they wouldn't make it out of the ER. <laughs> no, they want that fresh water. You see, a reservoir is good, but you know what you really need in, in your life? You need a fresh supply. And you know what I find? God has more than enough to meet our needs, but He has crafted things in such a way that every blessing is fresh in its supply and in its sweetness. He could dump an ocean on you and your problems. But instead, he, he raises up a spring. And he does that. You know, people go over there and, and get right down at the at the nozzle of that spring and fill up those milk jugs. they got to get close to that source if they want to get the spring water. Isn't that right, Brother Larry? You know, that's how God does blessings in our life. He does them in such a way where we don't live, uh, you know, across a, a 1,200-acre lake from him. Instead, he does it from a spring, so we have to stay close to it. Blessing by blessing, problem by problem, need by need, God provides for us. He keeps us close to it. So I see His sufficient provision. Then I notice, this is interesting, God sort of, it almost is like He changes gears, but He doesn't. He's still talking about the way He meets our needs. And in verse 19, He says this, I will plant in the wilderness, and He names seven trees, the cedar, the sheeta tree, and the myrtle, and the oil tree. I will set in the desert the fir tree and the pine and the box tree together. Seven trees. I'm going to call this his strange planting. 
You say, preacher, why do you call it that? Well, number one, because of the strange selection of trees. We could go through each and every one of them. And by the way, each and every one of them have significance. Cedar, for instance, was always denoted as being of high value, something that was precious. Sheeta wood and, uh, and fir trees were both used in the construction of the temple and its implements. They're associated with consecration and righteousness. The myrtle tree in the Bible is associated with witness. It was in Zechariah chapter number one that Zechariah sees a, a, a vision of the, of the horsemen amongst the myrtle trees bearing witness to God's righteousness. The oil tree is another way of saying the olive tree. And it denotes the idea of, of spirituality, the spirit of God. The pine tree, I don't know how much Bible there is for this. So if you want to discard it, go ahead. But you know what I think of when I think of pine? I think of cheap. That's what I think of when I think of pine. Charlie said sap. Yeah, I go with that too. Cheap. And it's not found a lot of places in the Word of God, which tells me evidently it wasn't a a tree that was in common use then either. Non-desirable, humble, base. We might say profane type of wood that is not sought after. And then it says a box tree. Now, the box tree is not found very often in the Word of God either. Really, one other place in the book of Isaiah. But you know this about box trees probably, and it's probably not the identical one, but they're very similar. They tend to be small trees, shrubs that you'd line in your landscape. And now, you say, preacher, what does all that mean? Well, I see a cedar tree that's valuable, but then I see a pine tree that's cheap. I see sheet of wood, and I see fir wood that's used in the temple, but then I see myrtle wood that grows out in the wilderness and is used for witness. I see the oil, the olive tree, that bears the idea of the Spirit of God and and the the working of God. Then I see the box tree, just the humble, small, insignificant box tree. I'm saying it's a strange selection of trees. Now, there's a lot I could say, but let me just drop this in here. I think there's an application that regards the church of the living God. Because you know what you'll find when you walk into the house of God? You'll find a strange selection of trees. You'll find them of every kind. You'll find those that you look at and say are very valuable by the world's standards. Then you'll find those like me that you'll look at and say, it's just an old pine tree. There ain't much to him. He's just an old warped two by four, not much else. You'll find very spiritual, very consecrated people that you look at and think, boy, that's where they belong. They belong in the house of God. And then you'll find very spiritually small people, insignificant people that you'd never imagine God using in a significant way. You'll find people that are spiritual. You'll find people that are used to bear witness of the works of God. You'll find all that in the house of God. But you know what I think we could say about it as regards this passage? God says, I'm going to pull together a lot of strange things as I meet this need in your life. And you know what I found in my life? I found that God does things in strange ways. He could do things in simple ways. He's God after all. But instead, God seems to choose to use strange things. Somebody ought to give me a witness here. Strange people. Amen. And strange circumstances. He could do it in an expected way, but rarely does God seem to work that way. So I think it's a strange planting because of the strange selection of trees, but then also because of the strange location of the trees. He says they'd be in the wilderness. Most of these trees don't grow there. He said they'd be in the desert. Most trees of any size can't grow in the desert because there's not enough water to meet their need. But then this is the most interesting. He says together. And what you'll find is there's nowhere on God's earth you could go and find all these trees in the same orchard. God says, I'm going to do this in a way that you ain't never seen before. There's no other orchard you could walk into 
and see the same ensemble of trees that you're going to see in God's orchard. Tells me that when God does things in your life and mine, He doesn't do them in the ways that we expect. He does them in strange ways, strange places, strange processes. And if you're looking for God to do the expected, you're probably going to miss Him. Because that's not where He's going to be. You say, preacher, how could God work in a person's life and them never notice it? Because they're always looking for Him in the expected place. Instead, they ought to be looking at the incidents in their life that are inexplicable. The things in their life that they don't understand and looking to see the hand of God. You know what you'll find? That's where you'll find God. So I see His strange planting. Then, I think my favorite part of all this is verse 20. Because we find in it His spectacular purpose. Here's the question I think we've got to ask tonight before we close. Why would God do all that? God could do it any way that He chooses. Why does He do it this way? We don't have to wonder. God tells us. And He gives us four reasons. The first, He says, is for observation. He says that they may see. God wants you to see Him working in your life. God could work in the shadows. And undoubtedly, in many of the events in human history, He has. But most of the time, for God's people at least, He wants you to know He's working in in your life. He wants you to see His hand in what He's doing. One of the things I love most about the book of Nehemiah is every time when you go through this diary that Nehemiah wrote of the great work that God did, over and over and over again, Brother Fred, he says, according to the good hand of my God upon me. Now, God could have done that in a way where He wouldn't have noticed God working, but God chose to do it in a way that He was visible to His people. Preacher, why does God take the scenic route? Because He wants you to see He's at work. Number two, not only for observation, but for confirmation. He says that they may see and know. I often pray, and you probably do too, Lord, do this in such a way that men will know it has been you that has done it. Do it in such a way that men will look at it and they'll have to say, God had to have done that. Because mankind never could have. The Old Testament, this famous verse, we find it in the book of Numbers. We find it quoted again in the book of, of Psalms. And we find it again in the New Testament. This is the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. God does things in such a way that you might see Him working. But number two, He does them in that way so that you'll know it's Him. So that you won't have to wonder if it was luck or chance, or fortune. And even the negative things, you won't have to wonder if it's misfortune, or bad luck, or or an ill turn, but you'll know as a child of God that it's been the hand of God upon him. Now, why would he do such a thing like that? Well, he does it for observation, he does it for confirmation, but then that naturally leads to consideration. He says that they may see and know, and then what? And then consider. And then consider. God does it this way so you'll think about what he's doing in your life. How often do we lose sight of of what God's doing because we get distracted with what God's done? What I mean is we pray and we ask God to intervene in a situation, and then He does. And listen, first thing we ought to do is praise God. Glory to God, man. Praise the Lord that He did this. But it shouldn't stop there. The next question should be, now why did God do it that way? What's He trying to tell me about my relationship with Him? What's He trying to teach me? He could have done it a lot sooner, but He didn't. Maybe He's trying to teach me patience. He could have done it in a lot more practical way, but He didn't. He could be trying to teach me faith. He could have done it before I dealt with this area of disobedience in my life, but He didn't. He must be trying to 
get me to be consecrated. He could have done this the first time that I prayed, but instead he had me pray over and over. It could be he wants to hear me pray. In other words, we ought to go beyond just I have a need and God answered. We ought to consider what God has done. And why would he do all of that? Well, for the fourth thing, and I'm done, for illumination. He says that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord hath done this and the Holy One of Israel hath created In other words, the whole purpose of all of it is that we might know more of Him. That we might understand Him better. Now, there'll be things about God you won't understand until you get to heaven, and that's true of me too. But God's not interested in hiding behind the curtain. He went to a lot of trouble for us to know who He is. He gave us His book. He protected it, preserved it. God has gone to a lot of trouble for us to know something about who He is and what He's doing. So when He's working in your life and mine, the reason He's doing that is so that we can learn more of Him. It's not so that we can pay off a bill. It's not so that we can sleep and rest at night. It's not so we can maintain a relationship with somebody. The reason He's doing what He's doing is because He is our Creator, we are His creature, and He craves for us to know Him in a more personal way. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. I just want you to obey the Lord, whatever He may have spoken to you about tonight. There's probably a hundred things he could have said, but whatever he did deal with you about, that's what you need to speak to him about. If God touched your heart, I want you to come. You don't have to wait for the first note to be played. Father, I love you tonight. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth of it. And I pray that your people, Lord, would uh, walk in obedience unto you. If you dealt with them about something tonight, I pray that they would kneel before you and surrender their hearts to you about it. Lord, I love you and I ask it in Jesus' name.